1: From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant
0: Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White.
2: Thank you for downloading my podcast. My name is Rob Snow White and you can check out my new website at robsnowwhite.com. There you can buy flies to support this show, view YouTube videos, and see galleries of people with fish we've caught together. This is my interview with Phil Rowley. He is known as one of the two Stillwater guys from Canada. That means he's an expert at fly fishing for trout in lakes, ponds, and reservoirs. We're not going to talk about stillwater fishing in this episode. Phil will tell us how he offers tips regarding strategies and tactics, fly tying advice, entomology photography, and how he creates videos, authors books, and writes articles, along with his public speaking events, guiding and trip hosting. What we do talk about is Phil's childhood in British Columbia, the benefits of having an aquarium, current trends in flies with regards to balanced flies, leeches used from Canada to Argentina, jig flies, and attractor flies. Those are flies that don't look like anything found in nature, but are suggestive to the curious fish. We're going to learn about static electricity in Canada and where Phil likes to fish when he travels. If it swims and eats, Phil is interested in catching it. And that's what we're going to learn about in this episode. Thanks again for downloading this podcast. All right, Phil Rowley, I'm glad we finally have you on. Who is your celebrity doppelganger to start off with, in case people don't know what you look like?
1: Well, there's two. Do you want to poke fun at me? You could say Howdy Doody, for those of you old enough to remember, or maybe a Ron Howard.
2: All right. My dad used to sit in the peanut gallery.
1: Well, Howdy Doody show. that he might be able to verify.
2: Yeah. And if we're going to throw a dart at Canada right now, where would it land in your location?
1: It would land uh, just a, f- a few miles east of Edmonton, Alberta. Okay. About six hours north of the Canada-U.S. border with Montana.
2: That's not bad at all.
1: Nope. Not too bad.
2: Yeah, that's probably like a two and a half day drive for me to get to Montana.
1: Yeah, that's not too bad. And prior to that, I spent 35 years living in British Columbia and prior to that, when I was seven and younger, I was living in Liverpool, England. That's where we, I emigrated from Liverpool in 1969.
2: When there's a, a Merseyside Derby, who are you supporting?
1: The only team you must support, Liverpool. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, we're, Tell we're, me we're you're, we're, not an, you're not an Everton fan, are you?
2: Yeah, we're a Blues fan. We're, we're getting a little, little hairy with the relegation this season again. Well, so. um,
1: we're not probably going to make Champions League, but we did pound Manchester United, so Excellent. my season is resting on that, because we probably yeah. both don't like Manchester United, do we?
2: My buddy's a Man U fan, so I have to just deal with it all the time.
1: And then, My wife you- and son are. Oldest son are. So, although, that last game, they disappeared out of the room pretty quick.
2: <laughs> and apparently Man U's playing Wrexham, the, the team that's owned by the oh, actor, Ryan Reynolds! Yeah, yeah Ryan another Meadows, Canadian.
1: Yes, yeah. Uh, I didn't know that. So, uh, yeah, that's 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 interesting.
2: <laughs> Do you and Simon ever fish, and then he's got to wait till the matches are over before you two can go out on a Sunday or Saturday. I
1: have fished with Simon, and we often cross paths at the. Sh- uh, and we're talking about Simon Gosworth, um, who uh, cross paths at the various shows across North America and it is not unusual for us to be huddled in a room somewhere together watching Liverpool play, or if we have to be on the show floor because our uh, responsibilities demand it, then we are both decked out in the appropriate red attire, scarves, hats. We've even watched one time at the Pleasanton show in California one year. Um, The match started about an hour before the show opened, so Simon was able to get the match on the big screen in the Rio booth. So we stood there and watched the game, the half, you know, first half in relative peace. And the second half was with the rest of the public there. And I remember a lot of other people just thought we were both crazy. <laughs> to That's be that funny,
2: yeah. that's fantastic. Well, let's get to the fishing talk because we could do sure. football all day. How did you get into all of this? How did it start and how and when did you become an authority in the field of Canadian fly fishing?
1: Well, it started for me in England. I was thankful enough that my parents let me go with um, uh, a neighbor, Peter Hopley, and we went down to Sefton Park and course fished. So you would fish for uh, roach and bream and um, rud and perch, and a carp was the sort of the the pinnacle of that experience. And that was – I must have been about five years old. From there, we emigrated to Canada, and I started – we landed uh, and spent the first year in Chilliwack, which is in British Columbia, about an hour east of, um, hour or so east of Vancouver, and uh, I fished around there, the street, the uh, rivers the Vetter and the Chilliwack River, which are really the same piece of water, and then we moved to Vancouver Island about a year or so after. My dad got a job over there, so then I grew up on Vancouver Island, and I fished locally off the docks, mostly ocean fishing for, you know, whatever swam and eight something we would fish with it with conventional stuff probably start with buzz bombs and then we'd have a plate of reese davies anchovies and we'd run out of those and then we'd wrap tinfoil around the hook <laughs> as our allowances would only carry us so far but our love of fishing much much further so we caught all manner of things from rock cod to rock bass to bullheads which are just sculping to flounder to anything that ate we caught it or tried to
2: and did the foil on the hook work like in the episode of MacGyver?
1: Uh, yeah, for for rock bass or rock cod, as we called them, uh, worked quite well because they are they eat anything. Um, you know, we would just paddle out to some rocky outcropping in an inflatable that you know against goose barnacles was not a good thing. It was lots of holes and patches on it. Um, but anywhere there was kelp beds, um, we could find fish. And every once in a while, we get some salmon rolling by, and that would send us all into a craze trying to catch one of those but we were never fortunate enough uh to do that
2: did you catch other things besides fish as a kid going out flipping oh over yeah walls? crabbing
1: shrimp um we would make little land uh, make um the shrimp would come in in the fall months uh, on their migration and mating and migration runs and we would go down to the local um government pier, and uh, we had Old bicycle um, rims that we wrapped in burlap sack and attached some rope to it, and a little can of sardines to get them in. Or if we had any old fish heads or anything like that, we put that as in as bait, lay it on the bottom. All the shrimp would crawl in to feed on it, pull it up slowly, and fill buckets of them. And every once in a while, you get a nice big um, uh, rock crab or a dungeness crab in there too. So that was yeah. We were we were <laughs> we ate a lot of seafood back then. <laughs>
2: Were your parents okay with all of this playfulness outside and bringing things home?
1: Yeah, I was always bringing things home, including garter snakes and other things, too. But yeah, they, um, you know, it's funny. You look at, I've got two sons now, obviously, well, you don't know that, but they're uh, 30 and 27, uh, 28. Um, So they've grown up a little bit. But, um, you know, I I grew up in a time where your parents sort of let you out the house in the morning and you had to be home by a certain hour. Uh, You rode your bikes everywhere. There was no cell phones. Uh, The only time you would get in trouble is if you didn't make it home by curfew, or at least if you were at a friend's place, make a phone call to say you were going to be late, because that's when the worry kicked in. And nowadays in the society we live in, kids have cell phones, and you always know you drive them everywhere. It's kind of, I miss those old days where, you know, that your biggest risk was wiping out on a bike somewhere on a trail.
2: (laughs) And I'm jealous of the kids that grew up out west because my first trip out there it was 10 o'clock in Montana and it was still daylight. Mm-hmm. So when you have to be home by dark, you can be out so much later.
1: Well, where I live now in the summer months, it doesn't get dark till 11. So yeah, yeah. so uh, as a kid here, I would have taken advantage of that. <laughs> yeah.
2: So you have to have, I mean, you got a curtain behind you, but if you want to watch a movie, and you want to have a dark room? You've got to have good curtains or something to block the light.
1: No, no, no. It's um, we got blinds on and everything. But with the TV, it's not a problem. The way the room's set up. Okay. So, yeah, that's just it's what almost clutter against behind me. It looks like a a bomb went off.
2: <laughs> it's almost season to put my TV out on the screen porch.
1: Okay, not quite here. We are still. I think we had a dusting of snow this morning. I'm just going to check the temperature just for just for the. The exercise of it, but we are currently uh, minus one, which is about thirty Fahrenheit, and we're slowly starting to warm up. But we probably won't see any open water for another two to three weeks at least. It'll it'll start happening fast when it goes, but uh, we we get some bitterly cold winters here. So
2: we had a dusting of snow. I mean, not even on the sidewalks, just the grass and mud. Yep. That's all we yep. got this winter.
1: Yeah, well, we had we had it started for us um, pretty heavy, um, you know, in in early November, and snowed, and we got a good couple of feet on the ground built up, and then it stopped, and I don't think we've had any appreciable snow that I can remember. You know, dustings here and there, but you know, it gets cold. We get some. We'll get a week or two, not not running concurrently, but um, where we're minus forty centigrade, which is about where Fahrenheit meets. It's just you know, anything below minus 25, your nose hairs freeze. That's usually my barometer because wow. we do have a dry cold. So, you know, minus 10 centigrade is, uh, um, you know, I would be running around in shorts and flip flops, but it's usually just a jacket and maybe a hat on or something. And it's fine to, to you just get used to it. It's just yeah. part of, part the of rel- is-
2: the relative humidity here is what makes it so much colder.
1: Yeah. yeah when I travel back east, eastern United States and Canada in the summer months or in the warmer. You know, you step off the plane and you can – it's like water is hanging in the air yeah. you can feel it, whereas we're very dry. You know, we – in the winter months, static, a lot of times you've got to have a dehumidifier or whatever in, built into your furnace so when you touch things you don't arc across light wow. switches and stuff because it gets so dry. Yeah, you know, static, it, when you're tying flies, you can – it's almost like you're in Star Wars. You can use the force to pick things up because your static electricity will just – move things it's kind of fun to play with but it can be a pain in the butt when you're trying to tie with deer hair or something
2: yeah can you just rub like a a static sheet yeah you take like a
1: dryer sheet yeah if it gets really bad crazy yeah
2: man you must have just like socks stuck all over you
1: (laughs) no it's not that bad but you just notice it some days it's not all the time it's just all of a sudden wow there's a lot of static today
2: can you shock people with your fingertip a lot oh yeah
1: i do that a lot to my sons (laughs) that's funny another question you've got about Canada are there fishing clubs around oh well you can you could just say Canada is a less populated version of the United States we have fly clubs we have all you know shows we have all the things the trappings associated with fishing and fly fishing in Canada as well
2: you had the BC show this previous weekend
1: yep the BC outdoors show um you know from from January to roughly now maybe the end of middle of April, that's sort of show season. So I travel all over North America. Um, My expertise is still water fly fishing. So that's sort of, but I do other disciplines as well. Um, So I have been, you know, you mentioned the BC Outdoor show last weekend in in Chilliwack, which is, um, I mentioned that where it's changed a lot since I was last there in 1969. So, but I've already, I started at the Marlborough show in Boston. Then I carried on to the Edison fly fishing show in edison new jersey uh the denver fly fishing show the fly fishing show in pleasanton i've been to kansas city this year already bocan reno um so i just a little fly fishing nomad running around show to show club to club uh at this time of the year
2: and who's your compatriot this brian Chanfell? how'd you meet it's him
1: brian Chanfell. it's funny i met him he is uh we've become really good friends we've been friends for close to 40 years now. We do online courses together now in schools, but um, he was doing a presentation in Vancouver and (laughs) I had taken my fly fishing addiction to a new level. I'm fascinated by nature and and one of the appeals of fly fishing in particular is understanding aquatic entomology, the food sources trout feed upon. So um, I wanted to learn more about bugs. So I set up a 30 gallon aquarium in my um, garage because that's as close as my wife would let them in the house because she knew what would happen if they got into any warmer temperatures they'd start hatching. But I had a, th- a thriving 30-gallon aquarium with all manner of aquatic uh, invertebrates in it, damselflies, scuds, caddis, mayflies, water boatmen, back swimmers, leeches, the odd dragonfly, but you don't want to get them in the aquarium because they are like... The movie Alien. Once they get on the ship, they just decimate everything in there. So Brian was coming down for a presentation and asked if he could borrow some bugs uh, to put in little aquariums. So for his talk, he would have live critters, which is always better than a than a pitcher. So we met for dinner uh, that night when I brought him and we sort of hit it off and, um, you know, had the same interests, young families at the time, played hockey, uh, loved to fish, of course. And that just started fishing together and then started, you know, doing schools together. We, rather than seeing, you know, we, some people ask, you know, you could have seen each other as competitors, but we never did. Um, We just saw that we were greater than the sum of our parts and work together. And, and we have a lot of fun together. Um, We, uh, we work well, um, those kind of things. And we do presentations and, and joint stuff. We have our own online store that totally focuses on still water fly fishing. So, we do a lot of things together. We just don't get to fish enough. That would be my only complaint because he's now, you know, a good eight, nine-hour drive away. So wow. we try as best we can to coordinate our schedules. But uh, Brian's sort of retired now, you know, and he's living in Kamloops. He's living in arguably some of, if not the best, still water fly fishing in North America. So he doesn't have to go too far out of his dory. I spoke to him yesterday. He's already out. The ice is starting to come off some of the lower elevation lakes around the Kamloops area, so he's already – Fishing some of the open water around the shore where I won't be fishing for a while yet. So, uh, but I did get to go fishing in February in between the Denver and Pleasanton show. I got three days on uh, Pyramid Lake in Nevada chasing giant cutthroat. So, that was that was all right.
2: <laughs> that whole place is just fascinating.
1: It's a totally different fishery. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got the good for I've you know fished a lot of lakes across North America down into Argentina now. And that lake is unique in the way it's fished, particularly with the ladders and the chairs. 99% of any other lake, you tried to sit in a ladder or a chair, you'd sink up to your armpits in mud, right? Because, but it has the firm bottom to do that. And it's just a unique fishery that's, you know, evolved the way it has. And it's it's pretty cool.
2: That's definitely on my list of things yeah. to do.
1: There's some big cutties in there now. They put the pilot peaks. I first fished it. Over 10 years ago, when they had just the summit strain in, and they got to about 10 pounds, but these pilot peak strain fight really well. you know cutthroat are always known for their fighting ability, um, but they are you know a very cool trout species to catch, and they're usually pretty cooperative. but these pilot peak are pushing well over 20 uh, pounds, and they pull. I was fortunate enough to get a 10 pounder and a 15 pounder on that last trip, so um,
2: that's incredible.
1: pretty exciting. very cool.
2: <laughs> I want to go back to your aquarium.
1: Sure.
2: So when you were sitting there, I'm guessing you probably had a nice comfy chair where you can just sit and stare at it. How did that influence your fishing, your fly tying, how you would fish a fly? Like seeing scuds in an aquarium is one of the most wild things I've done is they're so active.
1: Yeah, it it was. um, And it was sort of inspired. Both uh, Brian and I, there was a uh, fly fisher in British Columbia by the name of Jack Shaw. Um, he rose to prominence, I would say, post World War II, early 50s, and he started having bugs in aquariums and studying them because he started developing flies and, and, and presentation techniques that match the food source. Prior to that, it was a lot of wet fly and attractor fishing, um, not much in the way of the imitative stuff. So, he, what he had done, reading a couple of his, he put out some books, uh, fly fish the trout lakes and. I can't remember the other one. I should know this. But anyway, fascinated by what he did. And that sort of stuck in my brain. And I said, one day I want to do that. So I did. I eventually did it. And I, you know, set it up, got the aquarium going, just like you get any tropical fish aquarium going. You got to get the biology of the aquarium established. And then I would uh, <clears throat> go out to local lakes and. Start capturing bugs and, and dump them in there, and it was always a constant state of flux because something's always eating something else. It's a it's a rough and tumble world down there. So, you know, having any kind of balance was impossible because often if you brought weeds in, you'd get some somebody in in the aquarium you wouldn't. And I mentioned like a dragonfly nymph; they can just reap carnage on, on the place. They're such ag- aggressive predators. You know, I've always approached my fly fishing from a science-based approach, like understanding nature and how all these creatures and how how the lakes function every you know function throughout the year those kind of things so you really learned you know as you mentioned the scuds their behaviors when they're active their coloration how do they move their habits ironically scuds next to dragonfly nymphs were arguably the most aggressive thing i had in the aquarium because they used to hunt in packs so some days they were vegetarian other days, they would shred a damsel flying in. Three or four of them would gang up and tear it to pieces, yeah. Oh, so you yes. really got to see things that you would never see. And, you know, be very if you did see it, you were very lucky because, you know, we just didn't have that that privilege. And you mentioned I would sit in front of the aquariums and just watch for hours. As my wife said, just go kiss them goodnight because I, I spent a lot of time down there. But I also did it because I was starting to do presentations. And, of course, if you have a, a picture – of the insect or the food source, you know, it just adds another element to your presentations. Now it's all video, of course. So I was taking pictures and developing my, you know, getting frustrated developing my, trying to self-teach yourself macro photography, and that all sort of dovetailed and came together in my first book, Fly Patterns for Still Waters, because twenty some odd years ago, there was no book specifically designed for still water fly patterns. It was books that said, Oh, this fly could be used in a lake, or I have used this, or maybe a little bit, but nothing specific. So I used what I had learned from insects to take a develop a pattern book that focused on my stillwater patterns at the time, others such as Brian's, anybody, you know, across North America I'd run into, who had good stillwater patterns, and I basically linked an understanding of the food source, what its traits and characteristics were, and how that influenced your fly design. And your how you presented it. So, what colors did it come in? How big was it? What was its what was it, sorry? What were its behaviors? Did it swim? Did it crawl? Was it a predator? Was it a you know was it a, a herbivore kind of thing? Was it you know and just link that in that, that book? Uh, I was very fortunate. It did Did very well, you know, for a fly time book. It, it's now just gone out of print, but it, it had a shelf life over twenty years, which was pretty good.
2: That's fantastic. I'm
1: told. I'm told. <laughs> Are there
2: bugs that you see out in the wild that get you excited? For me, it would be a mayfly. They don't live really where I am. If I go somewhere and see like a drake near a a light at night, I just...
1: For us on lakes in the West, it's coronimates, midges, because they are the number one food source. And that was part of my study for that book. I was doing, you know, if we kept a fish for the table back then, looking in its stomach contents to see what it had and the ratios it had. And also careful use of a throat pump, which is a little turkey baster that we use to, you know, carefully um, remove food items from a living fish, and let them go a little tired, a little hungry, and just started documenting what I saw. And I came up with um, diet charts uh, from that, you know, season long and different, you know, through the through the, the the open water season, the spring, summer, and fall. And from there, you start to see the patterns and you start making better choices and pattern selection, how you present them and catch more fish. And chironomids were the number one food source. So they're often, you know, in, in moving water, people refer to them midges because the, the species size in rivers is considerably smaller. In lakes, we get some as big as 8.2XL on some lakes, like some really big uh, chironomids we call bombers. In England, they call Call them buzzers because when you get a large enough concentration of mating adults flying along the shoreline, the sound of their wings is audible. You can I've hear them.
0: Heard it's
2: it just, once uh, in Colorado, it's Mountain. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it's wild. going right. So, as a stillwater fly fisher, that's a bug that gets you excited. I enjoy mayflies too because in lakes we don't get the mayfly species that we have, Calabatus. Uh, out west, hexagena, which you're probably familiar with. In mm-hmm. the east, some siflonerus, gray drakes, and and yard time you'll see some tricos, or um, we'll get Canis, but the white wing curse. But we never really that's a you'll see them on the water in the mornings, typically after a spinner fall. But it all takes place in the shallows at night, and generally are not they're not exposed to the trout. Um, but we'll see the tricos and things like that. You know, on on lakes like Hebgen Lake in Montana. Um, they'll get pushed out into the lake coming down the rivers during a hatch sequence. So they're not really native to lakes. Uh, You know, they can live in that interface between the river and the lake where the river spills in, but they're not a a dedicated lake species. But I do like mayflies because they typically hatch, uh, start to get going, uh, early in the season. Chronimids happen hatch first, mayflies, if they're present, start going second, and they're just, a, we fish them very similarly, and, and they're a lot of fun. It's, we get the odd time to do a little dry fly activity, which still waters are not usually known for. So, right.
2: Have you ever eaten these bugs to determine if the trout know what they're talking about?
1: <laughs> not on purpose, but I always joke sometimes when you're on a lake moving from one location to another, and you've got the boat the boat's going, and you fly through a swarm, and especially coronamids, you you get a few stuck in the throat. I always joke, I don't quite know what trout see in them, but.
2: (laughs) That's funny. And then what about collecting? If someone wants to collect, and it's been a long time since I've done that. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your methods of collecting and preserving, labeling, and keeping track of everything? um,
1: You know, you you can get, you know, onset of Amazon, you can get vials online all over the place. You always want to uh, obviously you collect them. You can put them in some alcohol. Sometimes I put a you know simple rubbing alcohol. I think I used to use. It's been a while since I've done it. Now I just take pictures and and video and 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 make notes and put them back. And then a little bit of glycerin in the mixed in the alcohol, like a ten percent of it, um, just keeps them from becoming brittle, right? Because sometimes if they stay in the alcohol and they bang around in the vials, as you look at them, you break off legs and and things like that um and and then you want to study um and if you slide a piece of paper in there you want to write it in pencil um because it'll stay on the label or you want to always mark it uh, where you found it the date and all that that kind of stuff um yeah i just recently did an online course with uh Another friend of mine, Rick Hayfley. I don't know if you've heard of yeah. Rick. Yeah. So Rick and I have become good friends over the years because he's always been my sounding board for my weird entomology theories I have at times. You know, things I see and extrapolations or interpretations I make or I have questions. I saw this. I'm not quite sure what I saw. So he he actually did proofread. The um, entomology section in my first book, Fly Patterns for Still Waters, and my most recent book, The Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing. So, and those kind of things, you want the science right because it's so important to be accurate, right? If your science isn't correct, uh, somebody else will find it out, and then it sort of throws the whole book into disarray as to what you're trying to the concepts you're trying to explain or or put out there. So. No, Rick and I, we had a whole section in that class on how to um, how to preserve insects and things like that. So,
2: did you read about the college professor that found an ant lion at a Walmart in maybe Arkansas, and no one had seen oh. one in ever? It was only in the fossil record, I think.
1: Yeah. Wow. It was pretty wild. They're still around in the world. They're they're the little they dig a little um, funnel, a cone shaped trap and settle in the bottom of it. And the idea is some unsuspecting insect or bug comes along and falls down, slides down the slope and ends up at the point of the cone where there's a big pair of jaw, jaws waiting for it to chew it up. So, wow. yeah. Well, with the way the planet's going and climate change, global warming, whatever you, you know, whatever you want to call it, things are, are changing and, and insects and animals that you, you know, didn't see in other areas are now appearing because the conditions are conducive to them being there now
2: are your Canadian windshields having less bug splatters in the summer?
1: No, not it depends no it depends where you go sometimes you've got to pull over, although my worst bug splatter experience was coming home from uh Idaho been doing some fishing down in the West Yellowstone area. And I was coming along the banks of the Missouri, which I joke is one of the most dangerous drives in the world because you spend more time looking to your left and right than you should be in front of you because you're too busy looking at the river and what's going on. And I must have driven through an evening caddis um, concentration and my windshield was just obliterated. I ran out of washer fluid and I had to limp wow. into Great Falls to clean it all off. Yeah, because it was just covered in it. But we get some pretty... You know, at certain times of year uh, around certain waters, we do get some pretty intense hatches too, that if you're not careful, you'll 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 decimate the local insect population. <laughs>
2: wow. Are hatches there occurring at different times of the year now?
1: Typically, you know, the further north you go, the hatches in, in latitude and elevation, so further north or further up, your hatches tend to be delayed because it's water temperature is the thing that governs hatches. So it's going to take those waters a little longer to warm up to the point that uh, emergence will take place. It's fascinating, you know, talking with Rick, for example, you know, when water's at a certain temperature, you know, an aquatic insect, all of its, horm- you know, its all of its efforts go towards growth. And then when it hits that temperature threshold, it goes through a change. And now all of its growth efforts and evolution go towards transformation and turning into an adult. It's really kind of cool Um, how it switches the production of hormones and enzymes and all those things that make up. They're a really unique, unique life form on this planet with how they've evolved.
2: Are there any bugs you do not like?
1: black flies <laughs> absolutely hate those things and it was it was funny my i was going on a trip uh, you know i get the good fortune to film some television shows with the number of shows but primarily the new fly fisher and i was going to newfoundland again the first time i went it was beautiful and newfoundland's still beautiful but it was, from a bug perspective it was great it was nothing around the second time i think we we're a little earlier in the season and it had been a wet spring which created the ideal circumstances for black flies to get going and they were everywhere and we were sitting around at the dinner table my wife and my two sons talking about somehow we got in the thing you know critters that freak you out so my wife is not a, a big fan of mice or snakes my oldest son does not like spiders at all and I was you know I had snakes as pets and you know if a spider's in the house I'm not gonna stomp it I'll throw it outside and all that stuff doesn't bother me but I came back from that trip black flies all oh, those things get everywhere and once they bite um and their mouth basically it's a two-part mouth that kind of stretches the skin with their outer jaws and they have this little inner jaw that goes in and kind of you know drill bits into you a little bit takes a big oh just a quiver now just thinking about it because we would stand out look out the door to get to the vehicle where we were going to go and they were just they were just waiting (laughs) on the
2: glass waiting yeah
1: and and they you know all of the nice Clothes we like to wear, fly fishing, the loose-fitting shirts, they love that stuff. Up they go, inside, oh, have a I great know. time. At least mosquitoes feed exposed You know, if you cover yourself up, you're fine. But those little black flies that get everywhere, hate those things. Oh, I still shudder at thinking about it.
2: What about a bucket list hatch? Or is there a bug you want to see that you have not come across yet?
1: I do enjoy... I've, Come across them, but not enough. are big caddis, we call traveling sedges or motorboat caddis. Um, these are like golden stone-sized caddis. Yeah, so they pop on the surface and then go running across and drives the trout, the trout crazy. Uh, big explosive rises. Um, you know, good, but it's a tough hatch to. It's like the green drakes on the Henrys Fork. It's a tough hatch to to get your your planning around. But uh, when they're on them, that's that's a lot of fun. I think I've had the good fortune to experience most, most of the Stillwater hatches and a lot of river and stream stuff. I'm trying to think of something. Cicada, I wouldn't mind. I've I haven't actually had a chance to experience those. And I see, you know, I've got friends in, uh, you know, down in Utah and Wyoming and those places that send me pictures of, and I mean, that's my kind of bug, size of a thumb. Yeah. Right? Um,
2: I only caught a bluegill on a cicada when we had the massive hatch. A year, two years ago, yeah, uh, it was deafening outside. It was, it was crazy. I remember it. That's the third time I've been in the 17-year periodical cicadas, and it was. At first, I thought it was so cool, and then two weeks into it, it just smells because there's dead bugs everywhere. You're deaf. (laughs) Go anywhere, and it's just loud. I couldn't sit at the pool and hang out. Yeah, and it just became a nuisance. But that was one of the cooler things to experience.
1: No, I'd, like to, I'd like to sort of see that or at least catch some fish on those and chuck a right. dry fly that big and round, rotund.
2: So I want to move into fly tying now. What's your vice of choice, first of all?
1: Uh, Regal. All right. <laughs> I noticed that on your hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, um, been a, I've been a member of the Regal pro team for a number of years now. So it's a, you know, I've, I've had the good fortune to tie with a lot of different vices, but the Regal I like because it's open, close. It's very simple operation um no adjustments built like a you know brick outhouse <laughs> yeah. solid
2: very yeah. few moving parts
1: no no yeah fewer few things
2: probably. to go wrong yeah. what about i want to talk about like say balanced leeches what's new in the fly tying world and if you can <laughs> explain a balance fly to somebody with the pin and the bead
1: yeah they were up actually the concept I it traces back to a gentleman by the name of jerry mcbride who's with the Inland Empire Fly Fishers in Spokane. I just finished speaking to them a couple of weeks ago. Jerry, you know, hanging flies under an indicator, realized your standard bead heads are going to hang vertically. And most things in lakes move horizontally. So the profile that you present it with makes a difference. So Jerry figured out a way using cutting a common pin to length and lashing it to the hook and putting a tungsten bead on that pin and pushing it right out to the head that's what the pins there for is the head holds the bead on and lashing that to the hook and then building the fly on that chassis would tip the fly horizontally when you hung it under an indicator and he used to tie on down eye hooks and my contribution after talking with Jerry was to put them on small jig hooks um, because um, if you're not careful if you tie on a down eye hook you'll obscure the hook eye when you're done so I was joking. My presentations; those are the ones you give to your friends. Who, you know, perfectly balanced. Just can't tie it on. Um, and and they have had a real influence um, when they first started to come out. You're like, okay, what's this? And um, you know, it's probably it's probably 15 years ago. So I uh, put the jig hooks on, and that allows you to. Uh, to uh, tie the fly on and, and get it horizontally presented. And I had done some experimentations. You see a new thing and, and you want to um, see how it works and all that. And I just found the balance flies, particularly we started with leeches um, because it was very hard to find small jig hooks that were stout enough. Most of them were designed for panfish, soft mouths. So a trout's got a little tougher mouth. So the, uh, anything small would would tend to bend out. But with the explosion of European nymphing, and the development of small jig hooks, now we tie balanced leeches, balanced scuds, balanced damsels, balanced, you name it, um, balanced bait fish, all of this stuff. Um, again, this is a fly designed to be suspended under an indicator. But when you fish it, like just cast and retrieve, it's a little jig. So when you strip it, it uh, obviously rises up. And then when you pause it, it immediately nosedives, which gives it this very um, seductive action. And I have even used it for bass. Um, because without an indicator it lands nose down on the tungsten bead hook point up and with little strips i can basically hop it all over the bottom just like a, ba- a conventional bass angler would use a jig setup um, to do that as well so i have used that for largemouth bass and smallmouth tell you a crayfish a leech or whatever just to get that hopping action you know over a you know a rocky bottom or one that's not too densely weeded and done very well so it's a it's, a, it's had a huge influence on on how I approach um, flies um, in lakes, you know, bigger not, not the coronamids I mentioned earlier, but the, the leeches and, and those kind of things because indicator fishing has become such a popular presentation technique on lakes, um, you know, but there's still lots of other great ways to present it too. And I use it on rivers too. It's a great fly to, to hang under a dry dropper. For example, um, because it's running horizontally, it looks like a leech moving downstream. So, when it's it, the way it rides; it's pretty weedless. It, it's it's a it's a great concept. So that's probably the one, you know. And the like, I guess the other one would be the um, increased use of attractors, and that's come over from England. Um, flies like the booby, fabs, blobs, wats. It's very popular over there. These are flies, not really designed to be imitative they're designed to be attractors designed to trigger a reaction out of the fish because fish don't always take our flies out of a feeding response they could be curious aggression territoriality um, and they don't always want to feed right they're not feeding when our our time on the water is limited so we want to catch a fish we can trigger a reaction out of a fish as opposed to triggering a feeding reaction we trigger a different kind of reaction and they've 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 had a, a big influence in recent years as well. And they're fun to tie. They're gaudy colors. They're you know, like a Las Vegas street sign fluorescence and they're big and they're pretty easy to tie and um can have a lot of fun with them.
2: Are you using the European materials to tie those?
1: Um yeah, we Super use a, a a product called Fritz is a very popular. It's got a number of different Uh, It's a chenille-like material, and it's got a number of different types of fritz, and that's a very popular, and that's getting more and more popular over here in North America, as more and more people discover its uh, unique properties.
2: When you're walking through all these different shows that you get to go to, are there any neat materials you come across that might be unique to a Canadian location versus Midwestern versus New England, and you just got to purchase them all?
1: <laughs> I'm always on my lookout for cool stuff, not only materials, but some of the other things that people, creative things that people come up for, come up with rather. And they have a pretty. The good thing about fly time materials is they'll have a pretty universal appeal all across North America and the world. Um, you know, our challenges for tying flies are probably the same for you as they are where I am in Canada or over in Europe. So, um, what's unique though is when you travel those different areas, is seeing how. In different regions and areas, how people, you know, what they've done, you know, to, you know, um, master, you know, come defeat or you know, master a fly tying challenge or a presentation challenge, is what I'm trying to say. Um, so it's kind of neat. That's why I like watching what they do over in England, because they do a lot of still water fishing over there. And we're all coming at the problem, the same problem challenge just from different angles and, and and sometimes that angle they come at it is, is something you hadn't thought of or or used. so um you know a lot of times we see things for other flies i i remember fly club i spoke to asked me A couple of questions, somebody new getting to fly fishing, what would you recommend? And I had to think about it for a second. I jokingly call those ambush questions because I have no idea they're coming, right? So I got to, okay, think about it for a second. And the two things I recommended in no particular order, uh, and this is in relation to your question. So the first thing I'll say is fly casting. If you can't cast, you can't do a lot of things, right? It really limits you, especially on lakes. If you can't cast any distance, you can't roll cast, you can't do a bunch of things. It really makes it tough. It really narrows down what you can accomplish on the water. The second thing was be a sponge. And that means learn all you can on anything you want. So you might be at a show and there might be a tire, they're tying flies for sailfish, right? And you might say, I can't conceive I'm ever gonna go tie flies for sailfish, but I'll sit and watch, right? Because I'll see some material they use to master a challenge You go, wow, that's a light bulb moment for me, either the material or how they use it. I might be struggling using the same material and see somebody else use a, a different technique that totally controls it and it doesn't become a problem. And, you know, I incorporate that. So you never know where your next little nugget is mm-hmm. going to come from. So try to be as open minded as you can and learn anything. You might look at something and say, I'm not, can't ever see myself doing it. I don't like to do it that way. That's fine. But you never know. You just never know where your next, you know, uh, source of inspiration is going to come from.
0: There's
2: grocery stores for me. <laughs> Dad, like the dollar store.
1: Yeah.
2: I find all sorts you have one. Well, Instagram.
1: I, I I joke, you know, when I first started fly fishing over forty years ago and fly tying, you know, prior to that, my wife or uh, my fiance at that time, she couldn't get me in a handicraft store. Now she can't get me out. <laughs> I have more fun going through looking for, you know, with an open creative mind, just wow, that's kind of cool. I think I can make that work. Yeah.
2: What about your signature flies? Do you know how many flies have been picked up commercially?
1: Yeah, I, we, both Brian and I are um, with Montana Fly Company. Um, so they do our flies on our behalf for our store. We just can't keep, you know, I used to tie commercially and it's just a lot of work for not much return. You know, they, they tie flies to our specifications, which we sell. So we um able to keep an eye on quality, do a great job for us. And I've got... I think something around 60 different skews of flies out there, always creating new ones as well, uh, you know, bounce, leeches, all the chironomid patterns, you know, we could we could sell hundreds, there's so many for such a simple food source, the pupil stage is what we fish most often, which is basically a bead, a body, and a rib, um, but there's just tons of variations and materials and color combinations that we can use for those so do those leeches dragon nymphs all of the major food groups i've got flies for that i've been fortunate enough that uh, they've seen the value in them and picked them up not only for what we sell in our online store but other fly shops around north america and i imagine the world too how'd you get your foot
2: in the door with that if there's a listener who's got some creative flies like me that you would love to get picked up is it just you? Just constantly send them. You have to. Yeah, they, you
1: would approach them, and they have a uh, each has a basically an application process, and you would submit your flies to them, and they go before a panel, and they would look at them. Um, you know, the, the sometimes if your flies are rejected, it's not because it's a good fly, but that particular component of the market is saturated, right? So it's just a you know they just carry enough, but there may be a niche. That they're looking for they're low so you could probably get an idea looking in their catalogs either a hard copy or online and and see how your flies would fit in with what they're offering and they're always looking for unique stuff as well um, that solves a problem sometimes some of the best flies you know i had some flies that perform really well and it was you know particularly with still water because it's not it's not as understood as as river and streams um where the majority of people who trout fish spend their effort though more and more of them are being swung to the charms of fish and fly fishing lakes you know it, it it was you know you just got to uh, try and impress upon them sometimes that the value And like anything once you got your foot in the door then you and and have you know some mileage underneath your belt you know they'll more appreciate you know they'll okay that's a good fly and understand why because your names recognized, people of trust That it's right. It's been challenging with lake flies because people don't know and understand. So you're kind of like, this is a really good fly for these reasons. And just trying to impress upon that and take take a risk on it. So you just, and you're going to get rejection. So you you, you better get used to that. But no, you could approach, you know, some of the major fly companies and, um, you know, they're always looking to add. It's a pretty competitive Um, business they always want to have the the newest and cleanest stuff you know they're going to be looking for that innovative stuff that has wide appeal right so you know you talk about your love of mayflies there's always going to be a uh, a market for good mayfly patterns nymphs duns spinners emergers all that kind of stuff right right
2: okay so if your winter is your show season i'm guessing summer is your school and teaching season
1: Yep. I literally flip over. We talked earlier about- You're like a lake. Yep, exactly. Um, So come end of April, then the lakes come free and I start doing um, destination schools. So I've got a number of lodges in in British Columbia and uh, other places in Canada that I that I work with you know we advertise and promote them uh typically they're on the water we try you know usually class size is limited to about 12 people so you can one of the features of my schools is people get to come on the water with me two at a time in my boat or if the lodge has boats whatever they come on the water and they get to learn because the on the water learning is really where it you know it takes it's like uh, many years ago I used to be a pilot you would sit in ground school and learn all the theory oh yeah you can fly too yeah not, well, I haven't flown in a long time, but yeah, wow. I used. That's when I, when I got at school, I wanted to be a commercial pilot, and, and unfortunately, in the early '80s, the aviation industry was, you know, in a real downturn, and airlines were laying off left, right, and center, and you, it was tough to get an entry level job because you were competing with a laid off 737 captain. Um, so I had about 350 hours built up, uh, you know, just building hours, trying to get different experiences. I always joke that it turns out it was fly fishing, not flying. And I just, like a typical male, didn't read the, the memo quite in all yes. the detail and just assumed it, right? But the same kind of thing. It's getting getting hands-on experience is, is is where you really learn because it really reinforces the lessons. So people would arrive at the schools. We have a bit of a, usually in the, you know, let's say on a Sunday to Friday kind of course, they'd arrive on the Sunday in the afternoon, get settled in. We kick off with a dinner, and then we have an orientation session. You know, sort of what's going on at the lake this time of the year, talk about the gear, what's going on that week, who's with what, all you know, sort of the logistics. And then every morning, there is a session right after breakfast because experience has taught me that uh, evening sessions aren't the best because if, you, if the fishing's good, everybody extends their day on the water, rightfully so. And then you have dinner, you might have a couple of beverages in you. Everybody, including me, the instructor, is starting to fall asleep. <laughs> so the retention isn't that great but right after breakfast the good thing about lake fishing is we don't necessarily have to be on the water at the crack of dawn so we get out there nine thirty in the morning and get on the water and everything's just starting to happen and fish right till dinner time have dinner and then a bit of a debrief and a bit of just relax and sort of gather yourself and and that goes on throughout the week and then during the day uh, we're on the water as much as possible so
2: and then you come back you're exhausted and it's time to write your books. Sometimes in
1: there, yeah, sometimes you got to find time. You've got to be, you know, writing is, I have I also do a column for BC Outdoors magazine and, you know, deadline dates and, and you know, you. for me, I have to be in a headspace to write. Once I get going, I can't stop, but it's getting going. I do a lot of mapping and planning out, research, you know, getting my facts in order, trying to get a flow and an organization, how I want to tell the story, I'm trying to tell and get that sorted out and then just sit and write. I always joke that the research is fun. Photography is fun. Writing sucks. (laughs) It's hard. (laughs) That's why. Especially in the world we're in today, we write so many emails and texts and the thought of sitting down and writing is like, I've just been writing all day long. I really don't want to do it um, tonight. But I would usually try to do it in the morning and set a word target for myself. You know, thousand words, fifteen hundred words, and get that done. Some days I'd struggle to get eight hundred. It just subject matter wasn't, you know, had to be told, but wasn't the most engaging. And other things you're near and dear to your heart, you just can't stop writing about. it. Well,
2: tell us about your new book. I'm guessing Tom Rosenbauer approached you and was like, you know, yeah, that's updated. that's a, fun-
1: yeah, that's a funny story. I've got to know Tom uh, over the years. I filmed with him a couple of times for the new Fly Fisher television show, and and he also had a a show produced by the same producer called the Orvis guide to fly fishing. And Tom says right to my face, I hate lake fishing. I'm not very good at it. I suck. So I don't like it. Right. So when they had to do the Orvis guide to fly fishing, I was the stillwater expert they brought in because Tom didn't want to do it. So, or didn't want to do, it. so I would go off and I just filmed that episode by myself. And, and uh, Tom would add a little bit of narrative to it in the form of voiceovers at the beginning and the end kind of thing. Um, anyway, so you know, got to know each other and at the fly fishing shows, they have uh, one of their f- um, features is an author's booth. So anybody who's got a book published, um, they have a bookstore set up inside there so you can buy the books and, and Tom would be sitting with me and as a speaker, you always liked the, the, it was a chance to rest for half an hour and sit in a comfy chair. Uh, get off the concrete floor and get your leg you know rest your back and your legs because it gets pretty sore after a while standing all day and um he said to me you know when we don't have a, a still water book in our orvis guide series we should have one i think you'd be a good guy to do it and i went oh, okay that's nice thank you very much humbling um but like a lot of things at shows sometimes things get said that don't happen every you know we keep it's like trips we keep talking about getting together every year at the show and we never do it we you know, go on our separate ways once the show's over and then life gets in the way and you kind of forget. So, anyway, uh, I went home and then, you know, emails and calls started to come in and things started to grow legs and take shape. And next thing you know, contracts are in front of you and, uh, you know, agreements and, and just, you, you start it. You know, it's, it's, you're excited. It's, you know, it's not, this, this, this book is my fourth book. So it's not like I didn't know what was ahead of me and you kind of expect. I wow, I'm going to write this book. I'd always wanted to write a book of this magnitude, but then the reality of it is, oh, crap, i got to write this book. <laughs> right? So the discipline to do that, and, of course, the pandemic hit, which kind of blew things up, and, you know, the publisher I was with was on uh, furlough for three months, I think. They were on the East Coast uh, in Connecticut, so that delayed it, And but it eventually got out, and um, I believe it's doing well. They were expecting 80,000 words. I gave them 110 and about 300 pictures, I just, you know, dumped everything I could think of into this book. So it's um, it's been well received. You know, people seem to be enjoying it and learning from it, which is good. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to didn't want people to go through the bumping into walls and face planting and the school of hard knocks that I learned to fish lakes with. Um, because there wasn't any resources like that when we started. It was all you had a mentor or you just learned the hard way or watch somebody do it. And a lot of secretive people that perhaps wouldn't tell you, you'd have to just figure it out yourself, which is, you know, a good way to learn and a horrible way to learn all rolled into one.
2: Absolutely. And I'm yeah. guessing there was no shortage of photography, backlogs of pictures for this book.
1: No, I had lots. I had lots although I as I mentioned earlier, I've done more, got more and more into video. Filming for my YouTube channel, things like that. Um, uh, You know, when it's just how things have evolved, but there's still always need good quality uh, images, and now we have so many good. You know, your iPhone today can take some outstanding images as far as quality and resolution um, you know, years ago it was slide i learned to do macro photography with slides so you would set everything up and shoot them and then about yes you see those kodak ones <laughs> yeah, back there i do yeah i remember those you know you would go to shows with your um your little kodak uh carousel, carousel and it's and there was two sizes it was 140 slides and i think it was said it 80 or something and you always wanted to use a 140, but they were known for jamming, right? And so, and then you'd have to, and if you had multiple shows, you would go back because the cost of duplicating so- slides was off the dial. So you'd be sitting there in your room, shuffling slides around presentations, right? Because you could have a slide that, you know, dupl- you know, now with PowerPoint and digital imaging, you can put shows together in no time, and you know, 10 times the quality of the show um, that you'd have with a slide. Right. You can put yeah. diagrams in bed, video, bullet points, key points, uh, you know, and, and I think as presenters, it's made us better because the PowerPoint presentation keeps you on tar- on track. You know, when that slide pops up with the key points, you, you know, sometimes in a in a slide presentation, you would drop a slide and it was kind of abstract and then you'd look at it and go, what the heck was that? therefore three slides later you'd remember right so it's it's made for i don't miss the slide projector days not at all and the bulbs that would burn out and then you'd have to take them out and they were about the temperature of molten lava when they blew so uh yeah and they were in really tight quarters to get them out wasn't no don't, don't want to ever go back to that no
2: i think i may have had a fan die once yeah my mind Ugh. yeah now
1: powerpoint I've, projectors go forever Right, I never burn out. Yeah. Well, I've never had one touch wood. <laughs> so are are you doing all the filming and editing yourself for your YouTube? Pretty much. I've got a friend who does – my friend and my wife do the editing. and the, and I do a lot of the filming, but, uh, you know, for my fly time videos I have on there, we usually film them in batches, you know, spend a day or two and just film, 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 and build up an inventory. They'll get edited, and then we'll trickle them out. You know, I'm trying to do them – I'm a little bit behind, but I try to release one a week uh, because YouTube's a television channel, and people, you know, get to know when things come out. Like you know, when your favorite television series was on, it's always eight o'clock on Tuesday. You wanted to make you know prior to the ability to record or watch it or binge it on Netflix or something. So um, you know, try to keep that frequency up. It's the frequency people come up because they subscribe; they get a notice whenever you put a new video up. But I am doing more and more um, vlog entries and educational videos as well you know, little how-to tips and things. And that'll start going in earnest now that, you know, winter's finally leaving, standing outside trying to illustrate a point <laughs> when it's snowing and blowing all over the place. Not Is there early.
2: a topic that trends more on your videos than others that people are watching?
1: Um, they do like, you know, you put certain flies up. Sometimes I'll put a fly up because it's a good fly, and I think it's important to get it out there, and that maybe doesn't get the response. But any leech flies, crawl Onamid pupa, Guds, those those usually get good responses, good responses. You know, dries not so much, but, you know, we, you do have to have some good dry flies in your box on lakes too. So, um, you know, they, they do well. And again, as a, as the a channel grows, it starts to have its own momentum. And people will, enough. you know, I'm fortunate enough now I've got close to 13 and a half thousand subscribers on there so um when you put something up it it tends to go a lot faster than it did when i had 100 subscribers it's right? awesome youtube's a search engine so there's a whole learning how that works right so you have to film and edit in such a way sometimes that's conducive to how youtube with their algorithm wants to promote it rather than the story you're telling. of course if you get to be you know a, a huge youtuber with millions of followers then you set the trend but i'm not there yet and i don't know in fly tying or fly fishing that'll ever happen so
0: right
2: what brought you to maryland to catch that straight bass on your instagram
1: uh that was um just friendships i built with uh, the fly fishing show so paul hess who lives in uh, new jersey um he helps out with the logistics of the show so he's always around and comes around and we started chatting and i had always wanted to catch a striped bass and tried to do it um between the shows in linwood uh washington seattle basically and pleasanton which is in the bay area i would try and arrange to get a couple of days on the delta to catch a bass in february which wasn't the best time to catch a bass on the delta because it was cold and never had much success and paul said to me if you want to catch bass you got to come to the east coast that's where they are so um you know we eventually were able to coordinate a trip and we went and fished chesapeake bay um with a guide um kevin Johnson ends i think he's retired now but uh got me you know within half an hour i had three of my first striped bass i thought it was gonna be a lot you know it was great they were willing to play the weather was beautiful because it can be nasty out in the ocean or in those areas it's a beautiful they, they both of them said i can't believe the weather we're having it's a beautiful day so and i've since gone with paul down to Harker's Island and fish for false albacore. And managed to get uh, my first two redfish on the fly, which I've had a lot of friends that have chased reds in Louisiana. They were a little angry with me because my first one was 25 pounds. My second was 35 pounds. So, you you know, stupid stillwater guy. And I said, well, think about it. The ocean's just a big (laughs) stillwater. Yeah, we were on the Atlantic, the second largest lake in the world. So (laughs) that's how I looked at it.
2: True that. Yeah, yeah. What about DC? Are you ever going to come through here?
1: Love to go go visit there just to go see all the, the sites and and, yeah. and see all that. But uh, if my travels ever take me there, I'd certainly go there. I've I've had the good fortune to, you know, as more and more people in the east, I'm trying hard to impress upon them that you guys have some very good lakes out there and some good fisheries, not just for trout. You know, I, I chase trout, you know, out west is predominantly trout, but I also chase walleye on the fly, northern pike bass you know if it swims and eats i'm interested in catching it so you know i'd love to get out there and and fish some of those waters and if i come out to dc i'd love to do that down to north carolina i remember paul going washington dc's that way and just saw a lot of cars and highway going that direction yeah
2: so the lake the big lake down the street's got musky walleye snakehead largemouth, all like the small sunfishes like 40 pound catfish giant (laughs) carp It's all just right down the street. I've
1: caught catfish on the fly. They're fun.
2: Oh, yeah. We saw some big rollers yesterday taking on some shad. Sounds like
1: an invite. I guess I'm coming.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) And then I'll take you to a really good sandwich shop here. But back home, where are you going to go grab a sandwich after a day floating on still water?
1: Yeah, usually at some local deli. Whenever I eat, I try not to eat at all the... franchise not against them but you know you want to have when I travel I want to have a different experience so that's one of the things when I do my hosted trips down to Argentina is that the whole cultural experience you're in a a totally different world not much western influence and you know totally different you know still eating the usual you know beef and lamb and those kind of things but just you know it's a whole different experience so you know I I know when I travel out east I was uh, Paul introduced me to, to Jersey Mike's um, mm-hmm. that's, well, that's two podcasts be- in a row that was mentioned that's a good food i enjoyed it all um, right a jersey mike subs
2: there's a, there's an egg in the nest okay my kid just got in we have a morning dove nesting right outside the kitchen door oh cool and there's it's the dodgiest looking nest you've ever seen because it's a morning dove and there's an egg on it today yeah and oh, wow. she, she just pretends that we can't see her she just sits there and doesn't move <laughs> all right well i think i've pretty much asked everything for maybe okay. the first time we do this we'll definitely try and do one in person and then when i start going to shows again yep oh yeah, be great University. to see you there
1: which shows do you usually go to uh jersey usually yep, yep. i'm usually there every year yeah um, I, would, so be- I want to
2: do atlanta i haven't just been down I haven't done atlanta
1: yet i've been asked a couple of times to go down there i'm not sure the Stillwater side of it but we'll see i have to sort of adjust the shows to you know have more of that um catfish carp bluegill bass right musky pike kind of thing which i i love to do i love catching big anything i like catching toothy critters those are and fun. there's
2: always the virginia fly fishing and wine festival
1: yeah usually i've been invited to that two or three times now and just schedules you get you know pulled in you gotta choose one time or in, in in some cases I would be away from home for three weeks and that may not go over well. Right. <laughs> I do have the responsibilities we all have, the accountabilities to be there. So where can
2: people buy your flies, your books, sign up for schools, videos?
1: Yeah, the best place to go for is my personal website flycraft angling so it's fly um, flycraftangling.com that will be changed later on this year to flyfishing.com the website's just being built it needs a, a serious overhaul it's a little dated so that's going to get a refresh um, but that flycraftangling.com, we'll, we'll, li- we'll link over we'll get the transition done so that has links to our online store that myself and brian chan set up stillwaterflyfishingstore.com very original name but search as well then that store came about because we would promote products and things that we had found and and uh, tried to guide people where we had found them and they couldn't find them there anymore so eventually we just said why don't we do it so we are totally stillwater exclusive there we have our flies Uh, The leaders and accessories we like to use, throat pumps, all of our books and DVDs, um, all the things we've done there in a kind of a one-stop shop, Stillwater fly lines, um, those kind of things. And that's where you can get my book. If you visit the travel uh, section on my website, that's where all my schools are listed. So I not only do the schools, but I have hosted trips like down to Argentina and places like that every year where I take people down to jurassic lake which is sort of the world's theory stanley cup world cup of Stillwater fly fishing so yeah 10 pound fish are kind of yeah
2: my client arwell yeah. my friend he was saying that you get you know you, you start taking pictures of 19 inch rainbows and then you realize well, why am i wasting my time taking pictures of these
1: yeah. Yeah, the, i the, said the, that's just yeah. crazy yeah the guides joke after day one they won't take a picture of a 10 pound fish and and it's funny you get skewed because you'll bump into i go with a a lodge called the laguna verde so they have access to over 20 miles ashore and they're one guide for every two anglers so you're in these hilux trucks which are like tanks they go anywhere and they've got a road system um that they have built in so you scatter all throughout the lake and then you generally meet around two in the afternoon and have a lunch all together and talk about what you did. And about two days in, I remember I had these two guests that said, you know, how'd you do? We got a, you know, got a, we're lucky, got into about 10 fish and anything big? No, nothing over 10, 12 pounds. And I'm like, do you hear what you just said? You just threw a 10, 12 pound trout under the bus, right? Because it wasn't big enough. And, and you do get skewed up. I've been lucky. My biggest trout has come out of there. I was fortunate enough to catch and release a 20 t- 22 pound rainbow on a balanced leech. The same fly I would fish in my home waters here. Exactly the same. The CBO, it's on our store. It's a uh, Canadian black dubbing, which I always joke, I don't exactly know what Canadian black is. Our black is the same as anybody else. Actually, it's a unique dubbing mix that uh, from the Canadian based on a color from the Canadian Mohair company for Mohair leeches that were popular very years many years ago. Um, but exactly the same thing. And I always go now, typically in the November, December, I'd like to go in January if I could, but uh, show season doesn't allow for that because I've been in April and I can't. I I land back in North America. Our season's kicking off, and when you've been catching, you know, for a week of ten to twenty pound rainbows to come and catch a seventeen inch trout's kind of anticlimactic. Yeah. Right? So your your whole sense of proportions gets thrown off. So pretty cool experience.
2: Fantastic. Well, Phil, thank you for your time. Thank you. And it's great to have you on your Beyond thank you. the Wealth and Knowledge.
1: Yeah, thanks, Rob. It was great, and and, I look forward to maybe talking again or sharing a coffee or Jersey Mike's in New Jersey next season.
2: In Jersey. We'll go to the Edison Diner and get a real sloppy Joe.
1: I'm in. I'll hold you to that. As soon as I see you, we'll be going.
2: (laughs) All right, my friend. Thank you so much again.
1: Take care. Anytime. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information
0: or to contact Rob, please go to www.gwgotrobsnowwhite.com
1: This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com